The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 21. The word of God speaks to us. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle of to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is God's word to us. Good morning, Frontline. How are you? Uh, it's great to be with you today. Glad you're here. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and find 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 8 through 21. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some downstairs in the windowsills. Feel free to take one of those with you as you leave today. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. And God is already at work. He's doing things in our lives, some things we can name and spot, some things that we're not even aware of. And as the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians that the kingdom of God is not about talk, but it's about power, that's our expectation as we open God's word. That the living God is here. The God who created you, the God who has pursued you, the God who holds you in his hands is in this room. The spirit of the living God is here to bring life, to bring encouragement, to bring correction, to bring hope. So as we pray, uh, don't just go through the motions. Take a step of opening yourself before the living God, humbling yourself before the living God. So Father, we thank you so much that we don't have to, we don't have to make you willing to meet us, you are willing to meet us. We thank you that we don't have to act like the pagan prophets of Baal and dance around, cutting ourselves and doing incantations to try to get false gods to speak and move. We thank you that you're the living God. We thank you that if you needed anything, you wouldn't tell us. We thank you that you created us for yourself and for your glory. 
And we thank you that there is no amount of desire we have for you that can outstrip or outpace your willingness to give yourself to us. So would you increase in us today longing and expectation and experience of your presence? Would you fill this room up? Would you teach us? Would you set us to rights? We love you so much and we thank you for this text. It's really timely, particularly, Lord, I'm thankful that you're meeting us with this word today. So do things in the room, we ask. In the name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen. Hey, so I'm really thankful that we get to dive into this text today. This text is in a lot of ways the most practical thing that I could possibly hope for in addressing some of the deepest pastoral burdens that I have as one of your pastors. This text is really reflective of a lot of hopes and dreams that I have for our church. I remember in 2005, when God called my wife Nancy and I to plant Frontline Church, we started in our living room and there were a lot of things that were unclear to us, but one of the things that was really clear is that we wanted to be a church for the city that we loved Oklahoma City, we felt a deep burden for Oklahoma City, and we wanted to do the work to think about what it meant for the people of God to take God's prophetic word in Jeremiah 29, a prophetic word that was given to Jewish exile sent to Babylon, a command that they were to seek the welfare of the city in which God had driven them into exile. And for the last 17 years, we've tried to figure out what that looks like. We've prayed that we would embody that kind of mission for our city, that we would be, that we would be a church in the city and, and for the city. And as our city's changed, and as there's been ups and downs in the life of our church, there have constantly been temptations to reduce what it means to be a church for the city. One of the most perennial temptations for a church like ours that takes seriously care for the poor and marginalized is to reduce the command to seek the welfare of the city to mere activism. To think that if we do a good enough job caring for the poor, if we work really hard in loving the outcast, and if we engage and show mercy to the fatherless, to the refugee, and to the stranger, that the city will somehow pat us on the back and tell us congratulations. I've said in the pulpit, a few times throughout the last 17 years that the city may hate our message, but it'll love our deeds. Today, at this point in the life of our city, I would amend that by saying, maybe, sometimes. Now, don't get me wrong, caring for the poor, engaging the outcast is an essential part of the mission of God's church. We're to love the poor, we're to give to the poor and engage the poor, and as we do so, it's a partial reflection of the heart of God in the gospel. That Jesus Christ, who was rich, became poor so that we could be made rich. And the heart of Father God is for the fatherless. And for the outcast, God has demonstrated in the gospel that those on the outside are invited into the inside. So to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our city is a part of our mission to engage the brokenness of our city, to push back darkness with our time and our money is part of our mission. But the church is calling to bear witness. The church is calling to be a foretaste of the city of God surrounded by the city of man. The church is calling to be a kingdom outpost that's a demonstration in both word and deed of the rule of Jesus is not found in mere activism, 
It's found in the contrast. It's found in the contrast between the rule of Jesus and the rule of the flesh. It's found in the contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. And the danger at Corinth, as we've seen since the beginning in chapter one, is that the Corinthians are losing their contrast. The ways of Corinth are pushing out the way of Jesus. And they're starting to reflect their city in ways that don't testify to their city about the rule of God. And they're starting to believe that they can maintain a Christian posture in the city and be a witness to the city while wanting and seeking the approval of their city and being a witness to the city. And at times being a witness against the city is diametrically opposed to needing the approval of our city. So today, as we dive into our text, what the Apostle Paul's gonna do is give three corrective contrasts. He's gonna point out places where the Corinthians are losing their distinction. And as he points out the places they're losing their distinction, he's inviting us to receive these corrective contrasts and to prayerfully and humbly turn to Jesus that we could be a people that bears witness to the kingdom of God in our cultural moment. So take your Bible, I wanna show you all three of these. First Corinthians chapter four, the, the first one, number one. He points out the contrast between the Corinthians and the apostles. And there's two problems happening at once in Corinth. And sometimes commentators on this book tend to try to decide and debate which one of the two problems was happening. And I think that that's a mistake. They aren't opposed. These problems are a both and. They're both theological and they're moral and they come with a one-two punch. The first problem with the Corinthians is that they have an over-realized eschatology. Their eschatology is all now and nothing's not yet. Eschatology is the study of end or last things. It pertains to the kingdom of God, the return of Jesus, the new heavens, the new earth, the resurrection of the body, God finishing all the promises that we have in Jesus. And what had happened over time in the Corinthian church as they experienced the nowness of the kingdom, which praise be to God is real, as they tasted of the Holy Spirit's power, as they received gifts of the Holy Spirit, as the hope of the resurrection was proclaimed in their church, they misinterpreted that in ways that negated the kind of faithful waiting and faithful longing for the things that are not yet. And what started to happen is a triumphalism replaced a willingness to suffer and to endure and to believe, knowing that faith is not yet made sight. The second problem is connected to the first, they replaced the cross for the world's wisdom. And their framework, their framework started to look more like the world's view of success, the world's view of honor, than God's view of success. For the Corinthians, everything was about moving up and to the right. It was about esteem, it was about prestige, it was about winning, it was about power and influence and success. And as they looked at the Apostle Paul, they began to feel ashamed of Paul because of his weakness and the foolishness of his message. They saw the lack of respect that Paul received from the city. And they didn't want to identify with that kind of weakness and foolishness. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 8, is going to use biting sarcasm. He's going to use irony and sarcasm to contrast the Corinthians with the apostles. 
And he's gonna point out that the Corinthians' eschatology and the Corinthians' view of success is not in step with the way of the cross. So take your Bible, read with me. 1 Corinthians chapter four, starting in verse eight. Paul says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul's saying, hey, Corinthians, you think that you are ruling and that you're rich and that you're mighty. One commentator points out that the Corinthians are acting as if they've already ascended into heaven and the problem is they've left God's apostles on earth following the way of the cross. Paul is saying that the apostles were called by God to bear witness to be an exhibition or a spectacle to both man and angels of the way of the cross. Paul points out with two metaphors that they're like, they're like condemned men being marched into the arena to be torn apart by wild beasts and murdered by gladiators. They're like the scum and the refuse that's left on a kitchen floor after you clean up after cooking dinner. It's not a life of honor or prestige, it's a life of weakness that the world calls foolishness. What Paul is saying is simple but really challenging. Here's the logic. Paul is saying like Jesus, like apostles. The way of the cross that Jesus walked to be the wisdom of God made manifest in the world to bear testimony to God's rule is the way that God called the apostles to walk the way of cross to follow Jesus in the way of suffering. And the next step that he takes is really shocking. Not only like savior, like apostles, but Paul says, like apostles, like church. Verse 16, he's gonna say to the Corinthians, be imitators of me. And that's a really hard sales pitch to swallow. The Corinthians are looking at Paul and saying, imitate you in your homelessness, in your weakness, in the reproach of the gospel, in your beatings and imprisonment and suffering. No, thank you. We'd rather have the ways of Corinth. Now, this is really important for us because not every Christian's gonna be called to endure the same kinds of suffering or the same depth of suffering as the Apostle Paul. Not every Christian is going to travel town to town and be homeless as you plant new churches. Not every Christian is going to endure imprisonment. Not every Christian's gonna be stoned or beaten with rods or shipwrecked as they follow Jesus. 
But the logic of Paul, which is unassailable, which we can't escape if we're gonna be followers of Christ, is that every single Christian is called to the universal cross-shaped reality of following Jesus. All Christians are called to a cruciform life. And there is no witness in our city if we abandon the way of the cross for the way of worldly success, prestige, and power. I wanna give you quickly three ways. This is not all the ways, just three ways that the cross shapes the reality for Christians. Number one, all followers of Jesus are called to take up their cross and follow Jesus. Listen to the words of our Savior, Matthew 16. If anyone, not just apostles or missionaries or church planners, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the upside downness of the kingdom. Jesus, our Savior, is saying that if you think that life is your own and you cling to it and you act as if you were your own boss, your own God, your own Savior, you lose everything. But in meeting Jesus in the cross, As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, when God calls a man, he calls him, come and die. In finding the good news of of Jesus, in hearing the good news of the gospel, what happens for all Christians is we're invited to a life of self-denial in which we bear the cross of Jesus and we live in the power of our baptism. We open this door as often as possible to baptize people who have proclaimed trust in Jesus. And as we take those people and we put them under the water, what they're proclaiming to all of us is that they no longer live. They've died with Jesus. Their life is now hidden in God. They're not their own. And for every single Christian, the temptation is constantly and always to take our lives back up and to lay down the cross. It's why we gather together on Sundays to sing these songs and to pray these prayers, to confess and to hear assurance of the gospel because as sinful people, we wanna cling to life instead of yielding life and surrendering all of life to Jesus. All followers of Jesus are called to take up their cross and follow him. He is our Lord full stop. He deserves all allegiance, all obedience. We are not our own. We belong to him. In addition, number two, all followers of Jesus are called to share in the reproach of Jesus. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 21, verse 16. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake. This is what the apostles experienced as they followed Jesus. Paul tells us in verses 12 and 13, when reviled, we bless. That sounds like Jesus. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Paul is saying that the way of the apostle, which was a spectacle that God pointed to, to reveal his wisdom to angels and humans alike, was a spectacle of being reviled as they followed the way of Jesus. And what Paul is pointing out, what Jesus pointed out earlier, is that to follow Jesus is to receive the guaranteed promise 
There's promises of God we like to claim and there's promises of God that we like to ignore. And the guaranteed promise of Jesus is if we follow him, if his word is our rule, if we say yes to him, there will be times in life where we experience the reproach of Jesus, where people think that we're fools. And sometimes the deepest betrayals and the deepest rejections will come from the people that are closest to us as we offer Jesus our lives. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to be morbid. This doesn't mean that you have to be abrasive. This doesn't mean that we should seek out rejection. But we should evaluate our lives. Because if there's no reproach in following Jesus, it's likely that we're following Jesus from a distance. And the promise of Christ is if we offer him our yes, if we surrender to his word, there will be people that will violently oppose you that will gossip about you, that will hate you, that will try to destroy you. And in the midst of experiencing that reproach, like the apostles and like Jesus before them, our job is to bless, our job is to entreat, and our job is to endure. Thirdly, all followers of Jesus will share in suffering with Jesus. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This is completely out of step with the Corinthians' eschatology and with ours. And I don't think that there's many people in our church that are tempted to believe the more grotesque forms of the prosperity gospel. But all of us are inundated in a cultural moment where Jesus is preached again and again as a means to an end that if we follow Jesus and worship Jesus, he'll get us all the things that we need to be truly happy. That Jesus will be a detour around pain and around suffering. But the promise of scripture is to follow Jesus is to receive a guarantee that there's times in your life where the place that Jesus will take you will be the very last place that you wanna go. And in that place of shadow, in that place of darkness, pain, and loss, The promise of scripture is that we're actually sharing in Jesus' sufferings so that we can also partake in Jesus' life. Bearing witness to Jesus in all of these categories requires a cruciform life. Christians and the church are always called to meet Jesus in the garden and to say through the death and resurrection of Jesus with Jesus, not my will but yours be done. And I want us, in this next chapter in the life of our church, I want us so desperately to be a cruciform people. I want us to be a people that embody the good news of the cross, the wisdom of God. I want us to be people that together are under the cross, that together are unafraid of the reproach of our friends and family members, coworkers, and city. I want us to be people that are not shocked and surprised when suffering hits, but instead know that in that place of pain and in tears, we get to know Jesus more deeply. This leads to the second contrast. And that's between guides and fathers. Between guides and fathers. Look what he says, chapter four, verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, uh, literally in the Greek it's, it is 10,000 guides, you do not have many fathers. 
For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here, here's the situation in Corinth. They have 10,000 guides. They have all kinds of teachers, all kinds of coaches. And the teachers and guides, they run the entire spectrum from kind of helpful to absolute rubbish. And in the midst of all the teachers and guides, Paul wants something for them as a spiritual father that teachers and guides can't give. He wants them to experience embodied truth. Look at chapter four, verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul wants the Corinthians to experience embodied truth. He doesn't want truth that's just abstract ideas. He wants truth to be something that they eat and metabolize into the depths of their being. He wants them to not just receive good advice. He wants them to experience both teaching and modeling, preaching and presence, hearing and doing, doctrine and devotion. I want you to think for just a moment of sons and fathers. It's one thing for a son to hear instruction and teaching about how a good man is to treat his wife, that he's to love her, he's to be gentle, he's to use his strength for her protection. And that's good and that's right and that's good, but God has designed the family in such a way that the teaching, the teaching is accompanying with modeling in which a son is raised in a home where he sees dad uses words to heal instead of destroy. The heart of our heavenly father is that there would be fathers that would be quick to repent, that would be gentle with their wives, and that sons would be raised in homes where they've not just heard good instruction, but they've seen good men. Paul wants this in the church. The message of the gospel and the modeling of spiritual fathers cultivates habit and virtue and practice. Paul wants them to embody truth, not just give it lip service. When the teaching of the gospel starts to affect how husbands love their wives and how parents discipline their children, this is embodied truth. When the gospel starts to shape not only your view, but your practice of singleness for the glory of God, that's embodied truth. When the gospel starts to change our relationship with money and possessions and work, that's embodied truth. When the gospel starts to break open our bitterness and our unforgiveness, when we start to realize how absurd it is to hold on to unforgiveness when we've been forgiven a debt we could never pay back in a million years, that's embodied truth. When the gospel leads us to love our enemies and to pray for those that hate us, that's embodied truth. And listen, all of that is fitting because God didn't send us an idea or a new philosophy, but he sent us his dearly beloved son. Truth and wisdom became incarnate. And Paul isn't interested in doctrine as just an abstract idea suitable only for a classroom. He wants truth embodied. He wants truth that leads to an encounter with God Truth that leads to change lives, even if it doesn't change our circumstances. The gospel really is the wisdom of God, and real wisdom for how to live and how to die is found in the personal work of Jesus. 
this is seen in particular in times of suffering. Uh, last Tuesday, <clears throat> I spent all day with a dear friend of mine and his wife as she died. We spent about 13, 12, 13 hours together in ICU. Tragic, horrible situation. We spent the day uh, praying and reading Psalms, holding each other, weeping together, praying over my friend Patty. And in the midst of that day, the thing that was really shocking was to encounter a man that doesn't just believe the gospel intellectually, but to stand by a man whose life is being crushed and broken and who still, through tears and in sadness and grief, is encountering the peace and presence of God, is believing that the cross of Jesus is his hope in life and death, who actually is counting on the empty tomb as his wife's hope and his hope was one of the most profound things I've ever seen. That's embodied truth. That's not just memorizing and regurgitating what we've learned from 10,000 guides. We can meet suffering like detached Stoics. We can meet suffering like panicked materialists. We can meet suffering like guilty moralists who kind of think that somehow karma's at play. But listen, only the gospel of Jesus Christ metabolized into the depths of your being can help you meet suffering as beloved sons and daughters. Only the gospel can help you grieve well. None of this nonsense about pretending to not be sad. Only the gospel can help you grieve well because in the gospel we see that bodies matter, relationships matter, and God has implanted eternity in our hearts and we rightly rage against death. And only the gospel can help us grieve with hope because we know death is a defeated enemy that will itself be killed. And only, listen to me, only the gospel of Jesus metabolized into your being can teach you the nearness of God when what you feel is overwhelming silence and darkness. I want you to think of Romans chapter eight and I want you to think of what it would look like to metabolize this truth, to not just hear it, but to eat it. What would this mean for you on the dark day? Paul writes, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who should bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? Hey, listen. My deepest burden for you as a pastor is not for you to simply have head knowledge of good doctrine and to be able to recite the gospel um, simply from the neck up. 
my longing for you is that you would embody the gospel and that everything we, we do as a church, our preaching, our teaching, our songs, our groups, our men discipling men, our women discipling women, having spiritual dads, having spiritual moms, that everything in our church would be built around eating the truth of God's word and devouring the wisdom of God in Jesus. And the reason I want that for you so badly is because the dark day's coming for every person in this room. That's not morbid, that's not discounting or denying that the world is also enchanted with beauty and the goodness of God, it is. But listen, we're fragile, we're all gonna die. And famine and war and difficulty and loss and betrayal and pain and broken bodies and broken relationships are part of this world until the return of Jesus. And we need more. We need more than the trite, pithy life coaches of the world to weather all that. We need an encounter with the living God. You need to know the promises of God. You need to stand in awe of what he's done for you in Jesus. You need to know that if he went to that length to redeem you and forgive you, that there's nothing more powerful than the grip of his love. That's metabolized truth. And that leads to the last thing connected to the second. Finally, Paul contrasts talk and power. Talk and power. Look at verse 18. Some are arrogant as though I was not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The teachers of worldly wisdom in the Corinthian church, and in our day and age, have a lot to say. A lot to say. And I think Paul would be blown away at the number of platforms that they have to say it in, in 2022. Some of the things that they have to say are interesting. Some are creative. Some are stimulating. They can flatter us. They can get the city off of our back. They can remove the need to repent and grow. And some of the things that they have to say can even make us at least temporarily feel pretty good. But listen, empty talk, chatter, it can't transform. It can't convict. It can't resurrect. It can't sanctify. It can't comfort. It can't raise the dead. Only the power of God can do that. The empty talk of these idle talkers in Corinth and the empty talk of the idle talkers of our day, their talk is impotent. It has no power. And what Paul has said in chapter one, verse 18, is that the cross is the power of God. And in chapter one, verse 24, he said that Christ is the power of God. And in chapter two, verse four, he said that his message came in a demonstration of spirit and power. What Paul is saying is that the contrast between idle talk, between worldly teaching, between all of the vain human imaginations that claim a form of godliness but deny its power are impotent what they get exposed. 
And the gospel of Jesus is mighty. It's possible that Paul's referencing in part some sort of charismatic demonstration in Corinth when he shows up, that he's expecting perhaps miraculous signs to accompany him or maybe divine judgment to fall on these teachers. That could be true. But it absolutely will be a gospel showdown where Paul Paul will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's gonna preach the cross. He's gonna preach the resurrection because the gospel of Jesus is the power of God. And it exposes and it heals, and it delivers, and it even cuts to judge when we won't receive it. So, my prayer for our church, man, my prayer is I so want to be people that don't settle for talk when the kingdom of God is in power. I want us to be people that eat the word of God and metabolize it. I want us to be people that are not afraid of the foolishness of the cross that the world thinks makes us the scum of the earth. I want us to follow Jesus. Your life is so short. (laughs) It's so short, man. The Bible says it's like a wisp of smoke that's here and gone. And to live life in light of what God did for you 2,000 years ago and what God has promised to do for you in the future through Jesus is the only thing to build your life on. Let's pray together. Um, Father, I'm so glad we get to be in Oklahoma City. I love this city. And I so desperately want us to be a church that's in the city and for the city. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would do a work in us so that we could be a prophetic witness of your kingdom in this city. That we would be men and women shaped by the cross. That we would be men and women who don't just settle for 10,000 guides but that we in our groups, in our preaching, and in our teaching would metabolize the wisdom that you demonstrated in the gospel. I pray that the gospel would go forward in this church with power. And I pray, um, Lord, any parts of our lives that we're building on sand that can't weather the storms of the dark day, I pray that you would show us and convict us and deliver us. I pray that all of our life would be built on the rock of Jesus. As we come to this meal, would you take the bread and would you take the wine and as you feed our bodies, would you feed our souls? Would you form Christ in us? Would you make us resilient? Meet us now, in Jesus' name.